Heavenly Father, we come before you today just thanking you and praising you for all that you are, for who you are. We thank you for allowing us to see another day, and we ask, Father, that you would help us just to commit this day to you. Help me now in this class, Father, that I would be able to communicate your heart on the subject of offenses. Father, help us that we would live our lives in such a way that we do not offend others and that we do not allow ourselves to become offended, because we know that is not your will. And we just praise you and thank you for all you've done. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, Shabbat Shalom. A couple of years ago, Rabbi Scott taught a series, and it was on John Bevere's book, Bait of Satan, Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. That book dealt with the subject of offenses and how the enemy uses them to divide the body of Messiah. And because offenses is at the top of the list of the ways the enemy seeks to destroy us as a community, I wanted to go back and revisit that subject as an introduction to those who may not have been here at that time and a refresher for those of us who were. And this morning's lesson will be a little different for me. Typically, I like to let scripture kind of tell the story throughout. But what I want to do this morning is have a little more of a dialogue and express to you with scripture as support as well. Uh, everything needs to be done scripturally, but let you see how critical this subject is and how serious offenses really are. The first thing I want to do is to define what I mean when I use the word offense. There was a really good definition in the, college, the Collins English Dictionary, and this is how it defines that word. The act of breaking a law, sin or crime, transgression, the act of creating resentment, hurt feelings, displeasure, and so forth. And that dictionary also explains that the word offense implies displeased or hurt feelings as a result of a slight, injury, and so forth. For example, don't take offense at my criticism. Resentment adds implications of indignation, a brooding over an injury, and ill will toward the offender. So now that we understand what we mean when we use that word offense, I want to share the story of a young lady that I once knew that allowed offenses to drive her away from God. And I want you to see how this progressed, how it started out something fairly small and it progressed. And this shows you how serious offenses can be. I'll be telling several stories this morning and I will not be identifying any of the people in them. It's doubtful that anyone under the sound of my voice would know any of these people because these stories for the most part, come from many, many years ago. But just for privacy's sake, I will not be mentioning their names or any specific locations. But they're all excellent examples of what offenses can do. When this particular lady was in her 30s, she encountered a considerable amount of rejection from women in the church, and not just one church. From church to church to church, <coughs> wherever she went, she faced rejection. She was married, but she was not a stay-at-home mom like the majority of women in the church, and in fact, she didn't even have children of her own. But she was a stepmom to two young children who lived in another state. They spent their summers with their mother, and in, excuse me, they spent the, year, spent the year with their mother and would come for summers and short visits to visit their father. In her mind, as she saw it, there were three strikes against her, all of which were taboos to many in the Christian community. Strike one, she was married to someone who was divorced. And I know I grew up in this environment, 
the denomination I grew up in, divorce was considered the unpardonable sin. And back that many years ago, when I knew this young lady, that was absolutely the case in much of the church. Strike two. Her husband at that time had, as I said, children, but they lived out of state. But she didn't have any of her own. And most of the churches that she was going to, these women kind of had the viewpoint that, thank you, that if you didn't have that proverbial 2.5 children, then you were not truly a Christian. And it's pretty sad, but that, that was the way a lot of people viewed it. And most of the women in the church never got a chance to know her to find out the story behind why she didn't have children. There were only really, in the last church she attended, there were only two women who, got, who took time to get to know her. One of the women was an older lady that had never had any children of her own, had wanted them but couldn't have them. The second one was a younger lady that was about her age, that had gone through a number of miscarriages before she was finally able to have a child. Those two reached out to her. The other women just basically wanted nothing to do with her. So the third strike she had was that she worked outside the home. And to these women, you had to be a stay-at-home mom. And even if you didn't have children, if you were married, you shouldn't be working outside the home. So she just didn't fit in at all. And it, it just appeared that these women took this position of three strikes and you're out and that's exactly how she felt and it happened over and over whatever church she went to she saw the same thing the last church was the worst by far and that hurt that she felt just continued to grow and it began to affect her relationship with God it became too painful for her to attend church on Mother's Day so we all know what happens on Mother's Day in our churches and I remember her telling me one story of when she went in on one Mother's Day and she walked through the door and immediately a young person handed her a flower and said, Happy Mother's Day, are you a mother? And she said no, and the person literally reached out and took the flower out of her hand. Talk about adding insult to injury. <laughs> so she just stopped going to church on Mother's Days. And from there, she began to quit going. She went less frequently. She eventually quit going altogether. And she began to feel like if this is how God's people treat one another, I don't want any part of them. Guess what happened over time? That jumped from not just being what God's people feel, but that's also how God feels about me. He doesn't care about me. He wants to see me hurt. And so she turned away from God. And she was away from him, from him for several years. But here's the thing. Here's the good news. God will never leave someone who belongs to him alone. And he continued to work on her. He gave her the time she needed to hurt and to heal. Then he brought her back to himself. And the interesting thing is he used a church to bring him, really, really bring him back to himself. When she started feeling his calling again, she found a church that didn't have those hang-ups. He led her right straight to the church she needed to be in, a church that allowed her to heal and supported her. And the most important thing is that he actually restored the relationship with himself. Even more than restoring her back to the church, he restored her to himself. And he restored to her everything that she had lost through the process. He restored marriage, children, grandchildren. So it, the story did have a happy ending, but that may not necessarily have been the case. 
And here's the thing. Our God is good. After he healed her, he actually allowed her to see what had been going on with these women. And it wasn't as bad. In their mind, it wasn't really what it appeared to be in hers. Because after she was healed and started going to another church, uh, he had her in one church for a season to be healed, and then he moved her into a different church. And when she went to this different church, it seemed like the same thing was going to start happening. lady came up to her one day after service and introduced herself and said, Oh, do you have any children? And she's like, No. Immediately the woman started this, looking around to see how she could get out of the conversation. And it was then that this young lady realized they're not being rude. She doesn't know what to say to me. She doesn't know how to relate to someone that doesn't fit that mold. And that's, that's kind of sad because that's the reality. But it was not that these women were being mean to her and trying to ostracize her. They just didn't know how to relate to her. And she had gone through all that hurt for all those years because of a miscommunication, a misunderstanding of what was really happening. And the reality is these women had built a cocoon around themselves. That cocoon made them feel safe and warm and comfortable. That cocoon was a group of people that were exactly like themselves. They didn't know how to stretch outside of that cocoon and, and relate to people who were different than them. And I shared that story because it is a perfect example of how allowing oneself to become offended can have serious consequences and even as in this case, could have been potentially eternal consequences. If she had not responded to God's spirit and returned to him, she may very well have faced eternity without him. And I suspect that it may be one of the reasons why John Bevere gave the subtitle of his book, Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. It's not just something that hurts us, it's something that can be deadly. And hearing stories like that always make me sad. And I'm sure it it does you too. And here's the thing, it's not just women. I also know of a man who was a seeker. And he got involved in a church that was one of our big mega churches here in Atlanta, and I won't use the name of the church, but the whole concept behind this church are these small group communities. And if you're plugged into one of those small group communities, I think that church works great. But as a newcomer trying to come in and break the ice, it's very difficult. He went there for a while, trying to find the Lord, was, was really curious, seeking with his whole heart. But the people were so standoffish that it turned him off, and he just finally walked away. And it took several years for the Lord to get his attention and bring him to the Lord, but the Lord ultimately did. So our God is good. As far as the cocoons that these women were built in, let's talk about cocoons for a moment, because getting out of a cocoon is hard work. How many of you have ever seen videos of a, a little caterpillar trying to break out of a cocoon to become a butterfly. It's a lot of hard work. It's, it's not easy. It'd be much easier just to sit there in that cocoon until your time is to die. But these butterflies have a purpose. God wants them out of that cocoon to share their beauty. And getting to know people who are different is kind of like that caterpillar. It takes effort on our part, but when we do it, we see beauty. It blesses us. It blesses other people. And it's God's heart for us. But some people just do not want to go through that struggle. And when we see people like that, we shouldn't get angry at them. Instead, we should feel compassion for them because they're missing so much. They're missing so many blessings of getting to know people who are different than them and seeing things from a different perspective. 
have an image here. If I can get it up. I'm not sure what happened. That's not mine. <laughs> I think we reverted out of the Wi-Fi. That's the last one on mine. This one should be the hand. There you go. Okay, let's think about our own bodies. What if you were made out of nothing but fingers? What if you were made out of nothing but hands? Kind of freaky, huh? Not only would you look very funny, but you would be very limited in what you can do. In order to get from place to place, you need feet to travel. You need legs to hold those feet. You need a brain to think. You need, you need your eyes to see. You need your mouth to be able to talk, your ears to hear. They all work together. And that's the way it is in the body of Messiah. We work together even with our differences. And when it comes to offenses, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, offenses are going to happen. It's how we respond to them that's important. And we do have the ability through God's spirit to become offended or to reject that spirit of offense when the enemy tries to use it over us. And we see that, an example of that in Genesis chapter 4, right in the beginning of our Bibles, when Cain becomes offended because God accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice, but not his own. God told Abel in verses 6 and 7, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, it will lift. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the doorway. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, he had the ability not to be offended and to respond in the right way. So indeed, we have the ability to respond in the right way. When we let the enemy work in our lives by becoming offended, we are unfortunately giving the enemy permission to come into our lives. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. When we allow offense into our lives, it becomes something along the lines of a game of dominoes. One tile, in this case, offense, is stacked on top of another. For example, hurt, bitterness, resentment, anger, and so forth. And eventually, all of the tiles will come cascading down causing tremendous pain in our lives and even in the lives of others. But if we stand strong and respond appropriately, releasing the situation to our Lord, we gain the victory and grow in our relationship with him. And that's why I wanted to do this teaching. Because resisting offense is one way that we can grow in our maturity in the Lord. I'd like to spend the next few minutes giving you a few more examples of how the enemy uses offenses to destroy relationships. First, offenses can destroy relationships among people. No doubt about it. There's the obvious situation where people treat others badly or speak Ill, Ill, Ill will about them, and that destroys relationships. But did you realize that you can harm relationships even if you don't say something about another person, even if you're silent? I want to give you a real-life example. And again, I won't be identifying any of these people, but there was another woman I knew many years ago who was married to a man who had young children. And just as in the first example, she and her, when she and her husband had first begun dating, she had children who lived out of state. The time came when the children were coming to visit him, and she was going to have the opportunity to meet them. And the meeting went very well. In fact, it went so well that when their time was up with their father and they were preparing to leave to go to see their mom, they clung to her and cried instead of their father. She was the one 
that it appeared that they were going to miss the most. So they went back to mom, a few months later, came back to see dad again. Only this time, when she met the kids, they totally ignored her. They were all over their father, oh, we missed you, we missed you, and then suddenly one of them looked at her and said, oh, you came too, and immediately turned back to the father. Her situation didn't get any better, unfortunately, and it took them a couple of weeks to figure out what was going on, but the kids finally admitted, well, yeah, you know, every time we mention her name, Mama ignores us. In other words, the mother had left the father for another man and was well entrenched in that relationship, had no intention of going back to the father. But she didn't want anybody else in his life either. And she was offended that he would actually move on with his life. And she was communicating that to the children, not verbally, but non-verbally. And the children picked up on it. And unfortunately, that was an obstacle that this couple was never able to overcome. And that relationship ultimately dissolved, not entirely because of the children, but they were a big factor in that. So even if you don't say something, if you're offended with someone and upset with someone, people notice. And that message gets out that there must be something wrong with that person, especially if my mama doesn't like her, there's something wrong with her. So we have to be careful how we respond to people and what we allow in our lives, because if we are upset with someone, it will come out one way or the other. And guess what? It also impacts our relationship with God. Because when we get offended with someone, we become bitter. And God is holy, and he can't have bitterness and anger and that kind of stuff in his presence. So we will drift separately from him. Allowing offense into our lives also opens the door so that the enemy can attack us spiritually. Did you realize that? Demons, who we all know are fallen angels, they know our weak places and they know where we are vulnerable to sin. When we open that door by allowing ourselves to become offended, they slip in and they take up residence. The way that we can send these demons running right back out that door is to walk in our freedom and Messiah. Our negative response to wounding from others is the primary way that demons gain access to us. And I want you to think about that. That's the main way that demons get into our lives is offense. That's how serious this subject is. One Bible teacher even put it this way. Going about life with a wounded soul is like living in a house in a dangerous neighborhood with a broken front door. The enemy can intrude any time he wants to. Pretty powerful words. As I said earlier, we choose how we respond. We can accept a wound that's inflicted on us, such as negative words, and believe that they're true. That will make us then feel that we're not good enough. But when we do something like that, we turn from God's word and we align ourselves with darkness. Instead, we should remind ourselves that God loves us. That means we're lovable. And because we are created in his image, we should never accept the lie that we are not good enough. God does not make mistakes. He created us the way we are. We are his. We are made in his image. And another way we come into agreement with darkness is by embracing bitterness towards the one who hurt us. Remember, when we hold on to an offense, it allows us to become hurt. That can turn into bitterness if it's not dealt with properly. So rather than holding on to and nursing that hurt and becoming bitter and resentful, we should turn to Yeshua and allow him to heal that hurt. We don't want those demons to be able to attach themselves to us 
and feed on that inner pain that we're feeling. And another thing, when we focus on that hurt, it can become an obsession. Every time we think about it, and every time we tell another person, that power that it has over us only grows. And it gets to the point sometimes where when we think back on the whatever happened, that it actually, our remembrance of it is much worse than what actually happened in the first place. Sometimes it's some very simple thing, maybe even just a simple misunderstanding. But when we feed on it like that, it just grows and it grows and it grows. Think back to how many people you know that have left a certain church or congregation because someone offended them. I know a number of people that have done that. And it may even have happened to you. Relationships are destroyed when that happens. And it hurts God's name. Just as I said in that first example, this woman even began to feel like God had turned against her. So it hurts God's holy name. God has called us to build his kingdom, but when we allow ourselves to become offended, we participate in the destruction of the kingdom rather than the construction. And that's why this is such an important topic. In chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke, we read about Yeshua instructing his disciples to forgive a person who sinned against them seven times a day. Think about that, seven times a day, and he's still saying forgive. Rather than protest, they responded by saying, increase our faith. And if you want to look up at that story, it's Luke 17, and look specifically at verses 3 through 5. Of all the things that Yeshua said, did, and taught, it was pretty telling that they asked for their faith to be increased over the subject of forgiveness. You would think maybe it would be, oh, increase our faith so that we can believe that you're doing these miracles. No, it was about forgiveness. And unfortunately, offenses are very common. And in verse 1 of that same chapter, Luke 17, Yeshua said, it is impossible that no offenses should come. Because we live in a fallen world, we will hurt one another from time to time. It will happen. The important thing is how we respond to it. Do we forgive that person and give it to the Lord, or do we accept the enemy's bait and allow the offense to take us as his hostage? And think about your own lives. What are some of the things that might offend you? Well, there's one here that in the Messianic movement, sometimes we see people get offended by the term Gentile. I have seen discussions on Facebook and other social media platforms that would just blow your mind what goes on over that word Gentile. That, oh, it means pagan. Don't call me a pagan. It doesn't mean pagan. It simply means you're of the nations. It means you're not ethnically Jewish. And they go back and point some scriptures out. And here's the thing, in the first century, the overwhelming majority of Gentiles were pagan. Pagans worship multiple gods, lowercase g. We don't have that in our society today, so that, we've got to completely detach that thinking right there, number one. But almost without exception, if you were a Gentile in the first century, you were a pagan. Today, it's just the opposite. Most of the Gentiles have come into the faith, the community of believers. So when somebody refers to you as a Gentile, they're not saying you're pagan. It's not an insult. It just means you're not ethnically Jewish. So we shouldn't let things like that divide us as a community. And here's a funny one. Uh, it is kind of funny. How many of you, well, I'm not going to ask you to show hands, but just think about, about this, especially for the women. How many times have you been told as a woman you shouldn't wear pants? I love this one, and I found a really good, humorous way to kind of lighten it up and, and take this one off the table so that no one gets offended. But when I've had, it's been a long time since this has happened, but 
I've had men tell me that, oh, women shouldn't be wearing pants. And I'm like, okay, well, why? Well, the Bible says men, men should not wear women's clothes and women should wear men's clothes. And dresses are women's clothes and pants are men's clothes. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, where in the Bible does it tell me that pants are for men? Because the pants I'm wearing are not men's pants, they're women's pants. They were made specifically for women. Guess what? There's no such verse. They can't. So at that point, I'm like, hmm, okay, so there's nothing in there that dresses pants. Well, what did believers wear in the first century? They wore robes. Hmm, interesting. Men and women both wore robes. Uh, okay, if we want to dress biblically, I guess we should go wear, none of us should be wearing pants, should we? Should we all be wearing robes? And that kind of stops it right there. But it's just a funny, humorous way to address that whole subject. That whole passage was not dealing with a type of clothing. It was dealing with cross-dressing, with men trying to pretend they were women and women trying to pretend they were men. And one thing that I've heard some people raise as well on that subject is, well, what about people who are dressing in the other's clothing for entertainment, like if they're an actor? Uh, you think back to the Holocaust. We had men and women dressing in the other's clothing to disguise themselves to escape persecution and even death. That's not what God was talking about. He was talking about people who are legitimately trying to be the other sex. He made us, as I said earlier, the way we are. We are who we are. If I'm a man, I'm a man. If I'm a woman, I'm a woman. And that's what he's talking about. Don't try to be the other sex. As I said earlier, offenses are much too common. They will happen because we're human. And unfortunately, we've kind of gotten to the point in life where we just kind of accept them as so common that we don't even think twice about them except we get angry. But we never realize where they're actually coming from. They're not coming from that other person. They're coming from our adversary. He's cunning. When we accept an offense, we become so focused on ourselves and the hurt that we're feeling and what the other person has done that we don't really understand what has truly happened and especially who is behind it, and that is the enemy. When we allow ourselves to become offended, we may find ourselves insulting others. We may destroy relationships. We may find that we betray someone or they betray us. We see congregations split. And we may even see someone backslide, as in that first example I gave you this morning. God wants us to live free from the influences of the enemy and sin. But when we allow offense into our lives, we do just the opposite. God's desire is for us to love one another. And Yeshua uttered a very powerful and revealing prayer just before his arrest. And I've used this example in teachings before because it's just so beautiful. And it's such a perfect example of his heart and how he wants us to live. And you can find it in its entirety in John chapter 17. And I'm going to read a passage from that today starting in verse 9 and going through 23. Uh, here we see Yeshua praying for those who believe in his name. Both those who walked with him on this earth as well as those who would come to believe in him later, which includes us. And again, starting in John 17, verse 9. I ask on their behalf, and this was with disciples at that time, those who were with him, not on behalf of the world do I ask, but on behalf of those you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name that you have given me, 
so that they may be one just as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. I say these words while I am still in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I make myself holy, so that they may also be made holy in truth. And this is, I really want you to listen to, starting in verse 20. I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, so also may they be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you loved me. There's a lot packed into this prayer. But for purposes of this discussion this morning, I want to focus on Yeshua's asking his Father for unity among us, his followers. The purpose of that request is so that we would be set apart for holiness and be a light to those who do not yet believe so that they would come to believe that God sent him. When we are in disunity, when we are angry with one another, bitter with one another, we do not reflect that message that will draw the unbelievers to God. It's when we walk in unity and love, free of offense, that God, that people can be drawn to God because they will see him in us. That kind of unity leaves no room for offenses. Harboring hurt, anger, resentment, and so forth presents Yeshua's prayer from becoming reality. And it's very sad reality that, um, that we see most of our, a lot of our hurts from the body of Messiah. They create some of the greatest offenses against us, leaving us filled, hurt, and betrayed. And we even see that in Scripture. David, Psalm 55, verses 13 through 15, lamented on the betrayal of a friend. He said, For if it were an enemy taunting me, I could endure it. If my foe was exalting himself over me, I could hide from him. But it is you. A man like me, my companion and my close friend. Together we enjoyed great fellowship. We used to walk with the throng in the house of God. And truly, it is our brethren that can hurt us very painfully. David learned that. But there's a group that can hurt us even more than fellow believers, and that's our immediate family. And the reason these two groups are at the top of the list is because the ones that we truly care about are the ones that can unfortunately inflict the most pain on us. When we have a close relationship and something happens, it hurts. And that's when we're most vulnerable to accepting that offense and that resentment that comes with it. So, we've been talking about people who hurt others. What about the person who actually commits the harmful act? Not just the one who's receiving the act, but the one who's causing it. We've got a good verse for that one, Luke 17:1. Then Yeshua said to his disciples, stumbling blocks, and we'll talk about that word in just a moment. 
the Greek word there, but it's also translated as offenses. So we could say offenses are bound to come, but woe to the the one by whom they come. Woe to the one by whom they come. We should not be offending others intentionally. It does happen sometimes unintentionally. But to do it intentionally, if we are really walking with God, we should not be doing it. And if we are, we need to ask for God's forgiveness and ask him to help us not be that way. But here's the reality. As I said, offenses will come unintentionally as well. We cannot help how another person receives something that's said or done because they may misperceive what we've said or done. So we can't control how they respond to us. We can only control the things we do and how we respond. So that's really what I'm focusing on this morning. Now, I just mentioned that Greek word that sometimes is translated stumbling blocks, sometimes it's translated offend. We'll talk more in depth about that next week, but for this morning, let me just mention that it comes from the Greek word scandalon. And that word originally referred to the part of a trap to which bait is attached. In other words, the image here is of a trap that is laid in someone's way. We also see that word used in the New Testament to describe an entrapment used by the enemy. And as I said, we're going to talk in depth about that next week. But for now, let's just realize that the way this word is being used in this verse communicates us to us that offense is indeed a tool of the devil to bring people into captivity. Now we see an example in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, where Paul instructed Timothy that the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, tolerant. Let him give guidance with humility to those who are in opposition. Perhaps God may grant them a change of mind, leading to the knowledge of truth. Then they may regain their senses and escape the devil's snare in which they had been held captive by him to do his will. When we find ourselves quarreling or opposing another person, we have fallen into a trap, whether we realize it or not. And the reality is that typically we have no idea that we've been taken into captivity by the enemy. There are two types of people who are offended. There are those who have truly been treated unjustly. And then there are those who only believe they have been treated unjustly. That is in their mind. In other words, they misunderstood what someone said or done. And they really weren't trying to hurt them, but it happened anyway. So have you ever known someone who always seems to be the victim? They're offended by everything. And if their mindset is such that they scrutinize everything someone says and does, guess what? Sooner or later, you will find a reason to be offended by someone. It, It will happen. Years and years ago, I can remember a gentleman that he had fought in World War II, and it left him very skeptical of things. And this man could go into a grocery store. He could go into a convenience store. It didn't matter where. If he went into any place of business, he would come out fussing because someone had tried to rip him off in there. And there may have been some legitimate cases where people may have accidentally or intentionally overcharged him, but it didn't happen every single time he stepped into a store, but in his mind it did. So if you look for something, you'll find it. Regardless of the situation, the person who only believes that he or she has been mistreated wrongly truly believes that he or she has been treated wrongly and that the other person is in the wrong. Often, as I said, that conclusion is based on inaccurate information, or the information may be accurate, but the conclusion itself is distorted. 
but regardless of what it is, that person is hurt, and his or her understanding is darkened by the enemy. That person has judged by assumption, appearance, and perhaps even hearsay. And all we can do for someone who's held bondage like that is to pray for them. So now let's talk about true offenses. I think all of us can, can admit that there is one person definitely, well, there's a lot of people, but in this particular case, Joseph. Let's think back to Joseph. Was Joseph treated unfairly? We'll all say unresoundingly, yes, he was. He had every reason to be offended and hurt by his brother's actions. They despised him because he was their father's favorite. And the dreams that he told them and his family indicated that even God had destined him to be above his brothers. So what did they do? How did they respond? They were offended. They threw him into a pit to die. But thankfully, his brother Judah saved his life by convincing them to sell him to a group of Ishmaelites. The brothers then concocted a lie for their father, saying they found his robe covered in blood, and that led their father to believe that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. Certainly, if anyone has ever had the right to be offended and hurt, it was Joseph. But guess what? His woes didn't stop there. He was later thrown into prison because he feared God, and he refused to sleep with his owner's wife. She lied about him, charging him with attempted rape. And we all know the story. Eventually, Joseph was elevated to be second in command in Egypt. And his brother showed up on his doorstep looking for food because of a severe famine. We would expect Joseph as a human to take vengeance into his own hands. But guess what? Instead, he demonstrated compassion. He looked very much like an Egyptian at this point, so his brothers didn't recognize him. But he definitely recognized them. So he set up a ruse. He wanted to test them to see if their hearts had truly changed. And without going through the whole story, we know that the brothers ultimately passed the test. Joseph revealed who he was. And then he explained to them that he had forgiven them. And he made a very startling and revealing statement in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Joseph told them, don't be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Yes, you yourselves planned evil against me. God planned it for good in order to bring about what it is this day to preserve the lives of many people. Psalms in chapter 105, verses 16 and 17, confirms that it was indeed God who had called for the famine, then sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. In other words, God was very much aware of what Joseph's brothers were doing, and he used it to save the family that would become head of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if he can do that for Joseph, just think how he can take our trials and hurts and use them for good in our lives. Joseph was tested and tried during those years he worked as a slave and that he was a prisoner. But he passed that test and God was able to use him in a mighty way. And we'll talk more about that concept next week. But just know that when we're hurt, it doesn't take God by surprise. And he can take it and he can make something beautiful of it. Also, remember that Joseph is a prototype of Yeshua. So what we can take away from this story is that rather than being offended and becoming bitter, we need to give the situation to God and trust him so that he can make, take us and use that situation to make us more like Yeshua, just as Joseph did. God knows everything we go through and everything that we will ever go through so we can trust him and allow him to help us respond in a way that glorifies him rather than opening ourselves up to the enemy.
In Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua gives us a list of things to watch for that will occur before he returns. And guess what? One of those things we need to watch for is offense. Verses 10 through 13 of that chapter in the New King James Version reads as this, this way. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Hmm. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay, so we see the part there where offense will come. But this chapter, verse 12 is pretty interesting. It says, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Well, a lot of people interpret that and say, oh, well, that love is growing colder, the unbelievers. Well, the Greek word that's used for love there is agape, which is the God type of love. So, in other words, we're talking about believers' love growing cold. Let's face it, never before have we seen such a spirit of offense as we see today. Everything has to be politically correct. We even see some students getting offended if you call them a male or female. I mean, it's at that point you have to be very careful. They want to be referred to as, what is it, Z or something like that, or, or they. They don't even want to use he and she pronouns. Everything offends these days. So truly, we're living in the end times. This should not be the situation, however, in the body of Messiah. We need to walk in love. And as Yeshua told his followers in Matthew 5, 44 through 47, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for you? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. We need to be willing to give. And I want to talk a little bit now about what happens when we refuse to open up ourselves and give to others. And forgiveness is something that we do give to others. And I want to use as an example two of the seas in Israel. There's the Sea of Galilee. It freely receives and gives out water. It has an abundance of life, nurturing many different kinds of fish and plant life. Its water is carried by way of the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. So it's the same water in the Dead Sea and Sea of Galilee. The Dead Sea, though, only takes that water in. It does not give any water out. It's one of the most beautiful bodies of water you will ever see. If you've ever been to Israel, I know the first time I laid eyes on the Dead Sea, I'm like, whoa, I could not believe how beautiful. But guess what? There's no living plants or fish in it because the waters of the Dead of the Galilee become dead when they mix with the hoarded waters of the Dead Sea. They become stagnant. They die. An offended believer is very much like that Dead Sea. He or she takes from others, but does not give. And that which he or she takes in becomes stagnant because it isn't turned around and given to other. Love, forgiveness, and so forth. We need to receive the love of others and be willing to turn around and give it to others if we want to continue to live and thrive in God. And let's see, I'm watching the time. Here's something else I want to point out. The knowledge of God's word without love results in a person becoming prideful and legalistic. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning idol sacrifices, we know that we all have knowledge. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. We too often seek to justify ourselves rather than repenting of our unforgiveness. And it's into this environment that deception can enter. And as we see in Matthew 24:11, immediately after Yeshua speaks of being offended, and that was that verse I read a few moments ago, after he talks about being offended, Yeshua then states, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Again, referring back to the end times. So what we see from all this that I've just said is that the people that are offended are actually the people who will be deceived and they are believers. We often fear facing the offense and dealing with it. It's not fun. It isn't fun. It can be very uncomfortable to have to deal with someone if they've offended you. We really don't want to let go of the offense as well because maybe we're prideful. Maybe we don't want to think about the fact that maybe we were in the wrong. Or even if the other person was wrong and we're right, do we really have to exert that over them and say, oh, no, well, we were right. We have to prove that the other person was wrong. We need to be able to let it go, let go of our pride, do what is right in the sight of God. John Bevere tells a parable in his book about how our response to offense impacts our future. And it's back in the days when settlers were moving to the west. There was a wise old man who stood out on a hillside outside of a new western town. And as the settlers would come from the east, the wise man would be the first person that they would encounter. The would-be settlers always asked the man, what are the people in this new town like? He would answer them with a question. What were the people like in the town you just left? Some of them would respond, oh, they were wicked, they were gossipers, they were hard to deal with, they were liars, thieves. So the wise man would tell them, this town is the same as the one you left. And when they heard that, of course, they would thank him for saving them from going through that again, and they would leave. Other settlers would come in that asked the same question. He would again respond with, well, what was the town like that you just came from? If their response was along a lines of, oh, it was wonderful, we had dear friends, everyone looked out for each other's interests. There was never a lack because everyone cared for one another. If someone had a big project, the entire community gathered to help. It was a hard decision to leave, but we felt compelled to make the way for future generations by going west as pioneers. When he would hear that response, he would reply the same as he did to the first group. This town is the same as the one you left before. And of course, they would be very happy and say, let's settle here. This man knew that how these people viewed their past relationships determined how they would view their future relationships as well. If they were holding on to past hurts and unforgiveness concerning past experiences, they would carry those hurts right into these new relationships. We have to allow ourselves to heal in order to have healthy relationships. So if we've been hurt in the past, we've got to let go of it. We've got to allow God to heal us. Then we can have healthy relationships with others. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for right now, I know that it's been a very heavy subject. So what I want to do now, and Brad, if you can get ready for us, I talked about butterflies earlier. And those of you who were not here when this opened up, you'll have to go back and look at this on the archive to kind of get the connection. But there is a connection with butterflies and cocoons. I have a song that, um, it's a beautiful song. I want you to really pay attention to the words because this fits so perfectly with this lesson this morning. 
It's called Butterfly Song. It's by a group called Havarim, which was three rabbis, I think they were out in Texas or something, released a CD several years back. And Havarim is actually the Hebrew word for friends. This song tells the story of a caterpillar who cared only for itself and for its comforts. And its metamorphosis when it realized God's calling on its life to become the beautiful free creature that God intended it to become. After this caterpillar surrendered to God and his purposes, the butterfly accomplishes its purpose, which is to display God's glory through its beauty and also to pollinate. Guess what? Without bees and butterflies to pollinate our food supply, we would lose our food supply and we would not be able to, to, to sustain life. Butterflies are not only beautiful, they're essential. We think about bees and pollination, butterflies are also extremely important in that process. This caterpillar, however, had it decided to stay in its cocoon, was nice, cozy, and warm, it would have died without ever having achieved the purpose for which God created it. And I know it would be a huge loss in our lives. I don't know about you, but I love to watch butterflies. They're just so beautiful. And there's an important lesson for us here. When we allow God to work in our lives, even when it is uncomfortable, we can be free like that butterfly, we can be mature, and we can become a beautiful vessel that he can use to bless others and speak life to them, just as these butterflies help sustain life for us. So let's go ahead and listen to the song, if you will. Commanded me 
Thanks, Brad. I've always loved that CD and that, that song never, I never really grasped the full meaning of it until I started putting this lesson together and then God revealed to me about the cocoons. And that song's just taken on a whole new meaning to me now. So, um, as he said, we have to die to be set free. We have to die to our pride. We have to die to holding on to offenses. We have to give everything to the Lord and let, be new creatures in him just as that butterfly. That caterpillar had to die in order for that beautiful creature to live. And I'm going to pray for us in a few moments that we'll all be able to do so, myself included, because we're, we're all human. As Yeshua said, offenses will come. We live in this world. It's not something that's a one-time thing that's over and it's done. It's something we deal with every day. Something I do want to leave you with, though, before I pray is there's an ultimate offense in our lives. And this one may take you by surprise. It's our Messiah, Yeshua. And I don't know if you've ever thought of it or not, but I'm going to show you next week why he's the ultimate offense. For those who are offended by him, there are eternal consequences, either positive or negative. And I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger for next week. So if you want to know why I say he's the ultimate offense, be here or be online next week to understand that one. But let's go ahead and close out in prayer now. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you now. Father, we just want to thank you for who you are. We want to thank you for the joy you've given us. We want to thank you for the gift of eternal life, for forgiveness. And Father, we know that you have commanded us to forgive one another as well. Father, that can be so hard to do when people hurt us. It, offenses, they, they can be so, put us in such bondage. And Father, it is not your will that we be in bondage. You want us to be like this butterfly. You want us to say everything that's negative, everything the enemy has put in our lives, we want it to die. We want it to be history. We want to be living in your spirit. We want to be like this butterfly, free from those offenses. We want to be able to be free to hear your spirit guiding and directing us and speak to us each and every day as we go on our lives. We want to be able to forgive, to live like Yeshua, because he is our example. He showed us how we are to live our lives. That's why he came down here. He came here to die for our sins, to pay that debt that we could not pay, and also to show us how to live and how to live free and in your love. So Father, I want to pray for each and every person who's here in person today, anyone who's online, anyone who may be watching in the archives later. I want to just pray and ask that you would give us that power through your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us any areas of hurt that are in our lives right now, anything that we may be holding on to that is not of you, 
Reveal it to us. Give us the power to renounce it, to give it to you, to realize that you are the one who takes vengeance. You are the one who judges, not us. We can trust you just as Joseph trusted you. He did not hate his brothers. He, didn't, he, had, the, he had the perfect opportunity to get revenge on his brothers to say, guess what? You left me to die. I'm going to leave you to die. But he didn't do it. Instead, he, he recognized your hand in this. He recognized how you could take this the horrible situation that he had lived in for so many years, the slavery, the being in prison, the whole bit. Father, it was things that we could not even begin to imagine. His prisons that he was in were not like the ones we have today, where they have TV and air conditioning. Father, this was a whole different situation. It takes it to a whole other level. But Father, he was able to forgive because he believed in you. And he knew that you are the judge, and you will judge between what, what is right and wrong. You are the one who should exact vengeance, not us. We need to give that role to you, recognize you as the judge and not ourselves. So we give these hurts to you. We pray, Father, for the people that have hurt us. We ask that you would help them to realize the error of their ways. We pray that they would repent and turn to you as well. Father, we know that you want us to love one another, to forgive one another, so that we can walk in that freedom, so that we can be unified, and so that unbelievers can see this body of believers that love, truly, truly love one another and walk in love, so that you can be glorified and so that they could also come into this this kingdom of yours and to live with you for all eternity. Thank you and praise you for all you've done in Yeshua's name. Amen.